Thank you for tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast, brought to you by the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's March 2023, and you are listening to Episode 330, which is a conversation about the 2022 Netflix film, All Quiet on the Western Front. Today's guest is Cole Burgett. He is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and the Moody Bible Institute. Cole teaches classes for high school and college students in Bible exposition and systematic theology. He also writes extensively about theology and pop culture. Cole has written an online exclusive film review article for the Christian Research Journal. His article is called Finding Empathy in the Trenches, a review of Netflix's All Quiet on the Western Front. Our subscribers can read his article for free at our website, equip.org. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do so to get access to all of our online exclusive content like this film review. Cole, it's good to have you on again. Always good to be here. Thank you. As I mentioned, Cole has written an in-depth review of the Oscar-nominated film, the 2022 version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which did win an Oscar for Best Picture. And way back in the day, I guess they didn't have individual years at the very beginning. So it won the Oscar for 1930-31 for Best Picture. And of course, the film was based on a novel that was written Way back in the day by Remark, Eric Maria Remark. And we'll be talking about that. And this time around, it has nine Oscar nominations, including for Best International Feature Film, which I think it has a real good shot to win at that one, perhaps if it doesn't win Best Picture, and also Cinematography Score and some other categories. So some of our listeners may be familiar with this film and its content based on the original film, but it is about World War I, so it is not something that maybe some of our younger audience knows very much about. So what is All Quiet on the Western Front about? And we are covering it this week because the Oscars are coming up on Sunday, and it's already won the Best Picture for the BAFTA British Film Awards. So it is a front runner for the Oscar, but we'll see what happens. But what is the film and the novel about? So All Quiet on the Western Front uh, is this new German film distributed by Netflix that follows a young German soldier named Paul Boimer during the First World War. Uh, Boimer enlists with a number of his friends, all of them very uh, idealistic German youths who really have no concept of the horrors of war. And they are sent to the Western Front, which historically was the front line between Belgium, Germany, and and France. Uh, And this theater of war is where the trenches were dug and trench warfare occurred. So very, uh, very terrible, very uh, gruesome. And once Paul and his 
friends get quite literally into the trenches. They're very romanticized ideas of war and fighting for their country uh, shatters against reality very quickly. So the film is a very sober and unflinching look at not just war in general, but at the First World War, which purely as a topic of study is often overshadowed by the Second World War. I don't think that the average individual or student even appreciates just how bizarre and horrifying the Great War, as it was called, actually was. And I, I don't know if this is just the result of it being taught poorly in schools. I know that my own educational background was horrendously void of much discussion regarding the First World War. Uh, but this was a point in history in which you would see cavalrymen on horseback alongside machine guns and tank prototypes. It's just a very odd and fascinating time in history where you begin to see just the horrors of then modern warfare coming up against more traditional forms at that time of nation-state combat. And it's really into that world that all quiet on the Western Front steps and grounds itself and its characters. And uh, to its credit, it, it does a, a very good job of showing just how otherworldly this kind of trench warfare could seem to a very young and unsuspecting, even naive mind. I think that the actors that were in this film portraying the characters from the book they are older, but they're supposed to be playing very young teenage boys. I mean, I think maybe 16 years old around there. So yeah, 16, 17, that area. Very young. And um, they don't look that young, but that's something to keep in mind if you haven't already watched this film, which is, you know, much more easy to watch because it is streaming on Netflix and a lot of people do have Netflix. And I think you're right about the First War World War. I think what most folks don't remember. I mean, they might remember the trench warfare, but that's the first time there was more technology used, like you mentioned, tanks, and also most famously chemical warfare, which hadn't been done before. So this wasn't a very long war. It was only four years long, but it's extremely brutal. And so it is really fascinating how they just kind of portray it with all of, of course, um, CGI and things like that, that can make it seems like that you're right there in the midst of it a little bit more graphically, maybe, perhaps, than the original film. But we're going to talk about the differences and does it make it a better film. I noted that it's a Netflix adaptation. It's, it is a film in German. And as I noted at the very beginning, it's been around for almost 100 years, and I mentioned it was based on a novel. So can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview about this film? 
not only the current one in 2022, but going back to the original Oscar in the 1930s for Best Picture for the film based on the original book by Remark. Yeah, All Quiet on the Western Front is one of those titles that everyone seems to have heard of, but it's a toss-up as to what medium someone first encounters it in. Apart from being uh, the new adaptation, the story by Remark was also adapted in 1930, as you mentioned, by a filmmaker named Lewis Milestone. And that film was and remains a very important cinematic achievement. It was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress in 1990, over 30 years ago. It was the first film to win the Academy Award for both Outstanding Production and Best Director, and the first to win Best Picture based on a novel. So the 1930 milestone adaptation of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is considered one of the best films ever made and is still probably the thing most people associate with the title whenever they hear it. Uh, now there was a another adaptation, a television adaptation. It was a TV film in 1979 with Ernest Borgnine of all people, and that adaptation received a Golden Globe and an Emmy Award. But that adaptation never really had the staying power of the 1930 film. Now. All of these are adaptations, at the end of the day, of a book by Eric Maria Remark. The title of that original book would literally be translated as Nothing New in the West, but A.W. Ween would give the book the title of All Quiet on the Western Front when translating Remark's works. The original book was published in 1929 and was a novel. Uh, it, was, it was fictional, but it was very authentic to the experience of German soldiers during the war because Remark himself was a soldier on the Western Front who was uh, pretty severely wounded during combat in 1917. He would go on to publish that novel, uh, which would very quickly sweep the world and receive a major Hollywood adaptation within a year of its publication. Uh, but that that's the book, the 1929 novel, that sort of touched off the, uh, the, the legacy, so to speak. And uh, that's the history of the book and the adaptations in a nutshell. Now, one of the things that I'm wanting to ask you is what you think about the themes and the staying power of the themes, because obviously, like you just mentioned, it was originally a book and then it was made into a movie almost 100 years ago and a TV adaptation and now another film again. So 
Is this a story that Christians in particular should care about and pay attention to? And I think my larger question is, should Christians watch war films? And the reason why I ask that is because a lot of Christians are very much against, you know, rated R films. But so many rated R films are favorites of Christians when they depict war. And of course, you know, there's some very famous war films from Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, all the way back to Vietnam War, Apocalypse Now. I mean, there's, you know, Saving Private Ryan is probably the most famous. And so we've talked about war before, most recently in your our discussion about the Star Wars series Andor, but should we care about a film like All Quiet in the Western Front, especially this one? It, I mean, it's brutal in its depiction of war. It's very, very graphic. So heads up, if you're going to watch it, it is, you will come away with a lot of disturbing images. So why should Christians care about this and or even watch war films? Yeah, so I, I do think that there is serious merit to Remark's original novel. I say that carefully. Uh, I think there's serious merit to the book, and I think there's merit to the 1930 adaptation. Um, I think there's significantly less <laughs> to the uh, the Netflix adaptation, but we can we can talk more about that uh, in a bit. But I, I also think it's worth pointing out in terms of should anybody just should Christians specifically care about this particular story. I think it's worth pointing out that many of the people I know who have sung the praises of the book over the years have been seminary professors and Bible teachers. It's one of those books that I've noticed Christians especially are drawn to. And uh, I, th I think that makes it worth paying attention to. And then when you look at the themes of the book, which we can get into, but when you look at the, the themes of the book and not just the things that Remark is writing about, but the way in which he writes about them, I think you can begin to see just why it is that Christians would be drawn to that kind of, of book, to that kind of story. And uh, we, we can get more into that. But to the question of whether Christians should even bother with things like war films. I think that's a completely fair question. Uh, and I would even go so far as to say that I feel I can make, I feel like I can make a better case for why Christians should watch, you know, certain films in something like the horror genre than I can uh, Christians watching war films. It's not to say that Christians shouldn't watch war films, only that I I sometimes struggle to see the merit of a lot of films in this genre outside of just uh, having an appreciation for the more technical aspects of filmmaking. Um, I can recognize that Oliver Stone's Platoon, for example, is an absolute masterclass of filmmaking and one of the most important films of the 1980s from a cultural standpoint. However, I would personally struggle a bit to make a good case for why, of all films, Christians should go out of their way to see Platoon. And I don't pick that film at random in this discussion because Oliver Stone was himself in Vietnam 
much in the same way Remark was on the Western Front. But I feel I can make a case for All Quiet, at least the novel, as being pertinent to Christians in a way that I just can't with Platoon. Part of that has to do with the medium of film being a visual medium. You really must have a strong stomach to watch war films, especially war films made in a certain era. Films like these used to be a staple of classic Hollywood and were in a, a lot of ways much more tame in you know, the, the olden days. But over time, uh, the films became a little more visceral. And nowadays, war films are almost a kind of like prestige filmmaking achievement. Like you mentioned Nolan recently doing 1917. Uh, it, it's it's now almost like it's something that a, a prestige filmmaker does is he, he that he does a war film, um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that filmmaking is expensive and there just aren't as many easily accessible and cheap studio lots like there used to be back in the day. And audience tastes have changed as well, so war films today tend to have extreme violence because audiences are more desensitized to that kind of thing than they were 60, 70 years ago. And I think anyone has to be very careful with what they put in, in front of their eyes, especially with the levels of violence in some of these films uh, are very visceral. The goal to be um, realistic is actually a bit of a double-edged sword here. I have a Christian friend whose wife, for example, has worked in hospitals, but she just cannot stomach the violence of something like a war film. And I don't say that in a degrading way. She just physically cannot sit and watch these very violent kinds of films, which is what sabotages something like Hacksaw Ridge, which is a film she would very much like to have seen if it just didn't have off-the-charts violence. So I think the question of Christians watching war films ultimately is a question that each Christian is going to have to tackle for themselves. But I think the thing they have to pay attention to is the purpose the violence in the film serves. Um, I'm not one of those people who says you shouldn't encounter violence in narrative at all. I mean, I teach the Bible. If that's the case, I, I guess I'm going to have to start skipping the book of Judges, right? where Jael hammers a, a tent peg through the skull of Sisera. It's fairly graphic, and it's not one of those stories that uh, it, it, it's, it's told in just this jail killed Cicero kind of way, but the method and the tactic is explained, and that's fairly violent. So all that to say, I, I don't think you get much mileage out of saying violence in something like a, a war film or in the context of war in a story or a narrative is inherently wicked as a Christian. I mean, again, three judges. But I, I do think you have to approach the material asking the question of what purpose the violence serves. What is the theme or the idea being reinforced by the story? And then proceed from that point forward. Uh, and that would be um, especially true when approaching the subject of war films. One of the really wonderful benefits for being a subscriber to the Christian Research Journal is to get the 
online exclusive access that's at our website, equip.org, to many of our cultural apologetics articles that really are giving biblical and Christian worldview analysis on some of those really hot topic water cooler issues where people are talking about a particular Christian teacher or maybe the latest film or television series should Christians partake of that. And you can get some of our in-depth insights into that by subscribing to the Christian Research Journal for $33.50. Now, the other thing that you can help us out with that's really big is to help us out with the algorithm online because the more that anything has ratings and reviews, the more that the algorithm and the computer programs behind searches on the internet will help other people find our content. And we want other people to find our content and be equipped in their Christian faith. So seriously, we still haven't had any written reviews since the beginning of September. That was a really long time ago, September 2022. So we would be so grateful if one of you would take the time, a few of you, just to write one sentence. What what do you like about this podcast that you are subscribed to? The other thing would be, if you don't have time for that, just give us a starred review because the more reviews we have of any kind, starred or written, and I'm talking about an Apple podcast, that's, that's kind of the go-to place for it, that really helps us out and helps other people be encouraged in their faith because they'll discover our podcast. So thank you for partnering with us by subscribing, by commenting, by liking, by sharing any of your favorite episodes on social media. We're grateful. We were just talking about violence in war films. Is there something that Christians could watch that maybe isn't as graphic, like a war film like Casablanca that has a romance in it or even... While it is graphic, it's kind of a retelling, you know, if I think of, I mean, we're not going to get into Quentin Tarantino, but it, when I think about his World War II film, Inglorious Bastards, it's kind of like, well, what if the war had a different ending? Is it easier to deal with some of the subject matter if it's couched with a different kind of approach, like Inglorious Bastards or even Casablanca with the romance? Uh, yeah, I think... Uh one of the things I mentioned was uh, the the war film genre was kind of a, at one point in time, it was a staple of, of Hollywood filmmaking. You will find that a lot of those older films uh, do sort of handle this stuff in a very tasteful way. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think that's what makes um, the 1930 version in, in many ways superior to uh, the the Netflix version is the the attitude with which it approaches the material, which I even though it's very um, graphic and was graphic for the time, it does so in a way that sort of respects what Remark was was doing in in the the book. Um, as far as you know, war films uh, that are are less violent. Um, I mean, uh, Nolan's 1917. Uh, the, wait, this, that was, was that Nolan who did 1917 or was no, that Sam Mendes? Nolan, that was Sam Mendes. What Nolan, did Nolan do? Dunkirk. Dunkirk, that's right. That's it's right. Very, I saw both of them. It's got a mood to it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nolan did Dunkirk and it was Sam Mendes who did 1917. I think I, I got that wrong a second ago. But I saw Dunkirk and that's 
one of those where it, it has a very interesting approach. Like you said, it's just kind of its own, its own thing. It's a very Nolan movie for better or for worse, but that's a, a more modern one that I think audiences can watch and probably have already seen um, that doesn't sort of revel in the, the violence in a lot of ways. Uh, it, then there are just older films like Casablanca that you mentioned, the 1930 All Quiet on the Western Front, um, something like uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, older films like that, I think audiences could certainly uh, could certainly watch without too much fear of of the uh, excessive levels of violence. And you know, even though Saving Private Ryan is a uh, a hard film to sit through. Uh, the The violence in that film uh, certainly serves a purpose and doesn't feel gratuitous um, in, in any way. So there, there are, 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 are films out there. They're a little older um, and, and a little more dated, but there, there are certainly war films out there that do that well. I will say before asking you further about All Quiet on the Western Front that the year that Dunkirk came out in 2017, another film came out about the same time period called Darkest Hour, and I saw that after I saw Dunkirk, which I wish oh, I had the uh, the Churchill film. Yeah, because it, Oldman. yeah Gary Oldman. It, it put more you know flesh on the bones, to so to speak. It was so kind of uh, like I said a mood for Dunkirk. It just didn't give you any kind of historic, there wasn't really much of a plot. I mean, but then watching the darkest hour, then I understood what was happening when I, you know, what, what did I see in Dunkirk? Well, now I understood that sometimes there are war films that talk about the time period and what was going on without showing the violence. And I think that's what the darkest hour was, but asking more specifically about the themes of remarks book, I don't know, like we were saying, it's so so long ago, almost 100 years ago, that some of our listeners might not be aware of just how much this book um, really drew attention to this issue. It was seen as an anti-war book, and it was one of actually the first books to be banned by Nazi Germany, which is really interesting because one thing I was thinking when I saw All Quiet was these guys obviously it was just horrific especially if they ended up surviving which it was very difficult to survive the war itself but if they did it's kind of like out of the frying pan into the fire with world war ii just looming and for all the young teenagers who didn't go to war back in the first world war in germany they probably would have been greatly impacted by the second world war just you know, 20 years later. So why did this particular book cause such a stir at the time? Yeah, so Remark had said that his generation was a generation that had been destroyed by war, even though it, it might have escaped its shells, so to speak. Uh, so that... Uh, philosophy really comes out in his book and one of the it's not even that the horrors of war would be a theme but one of the things he was so good at depicting in uh, very careful language 
was the horror of war. And it really was, as you noted, a, a kind of anti-war literature that uh, really got a ton of mileage out of the award-winning 1930 film. I mean, the Nazi party protested and mobbed theaters during the 1930 uh, screening of Milestone's film. And in 1933, after coming to power, this was one of the, Remarks book was one of the first books that they publicly burned copies of in 1933. They really saw it as a uh, threat to the, uh, the Nazi war effort. And, I mean, it, it really was. The book was, was excellent at not just showing the horrors of war, but also showing the psychological toll that the war took on the characters and how it dehumanized them and made it nearly impossible to connect with anyone on any kind of normal scale in the aftermath. There were scenes which we can talk more about uh, that the Netflix adaptation never touches. But there were scenes in uh, the book and in the 1930 adaptation where Paul uh, gets it gets leave and goes home. And when he returns home after having been in the trenches for some time, uh, he struggles to connect in any sort of meaningful way with people that he had left behind. Uh, he, you know, he complains about the... Uh, what he calls the stupid questions that his father asks him uh, regarding the war. And it's, it's not even that his, uh, his father is at, at fault, so to speak. It's just that he, because he hasn't been in it, because he hasn't been in the trenches, he doesn't really see how the questions he asked are just inane. And then he talks with some of his former school teachers. These would be the people who, you know, had sort of uh, stirred up his his youthful zeal uh, for his country. And he begins to really see just how much they don't actually know about what it's like to be, again, in the trenches experiencing this. And so he meets all of these people who are sort of like, you know, armchair generals. They They sit and talk about the war and what they would do and what needs to happen. And he's sitting there listening to them and just thinking how how out of touch they are with reality, and then as a result, how out of touch he is with normal society uh, because of what he's been through. And, uh, you know, when, when you're trying to uh, mobilize <laughs> young people to, to go and, and, and fight in a war for you, that's not the kind of thing you want uh, roiling around in their heads as they're marching toward the, uh, the front line. Um, but Ultimately, uh, one of the things the book did so well, and this is this is ultimately the thing that spooked Goebbels and, and, the, and the Nazis regarding the book, is that it absolutely excelled, Remark excelled at, he excelled at showing empathy. Uh, how characters on opposite sides of the conflict could actually find a common humanity 
and that's really the thing that that would show the absurdity of the war uh, in, in the book is that uh, the, the realization that the people that you're, you're you're killing are not just faceless villains, uh, but these are are people who have lives and friends and families and worlds of their own. And uh, the book was did a really tremendous job of uh, uh, putting a face on both sides of, of the war from the perspective of one very young, very naive even uh, German soldier in the trenches. I definitely think there naiveness comes through in the Netflix adaptation at the beginning. And I think this is probably true for even during World War II in America, where everyone wanted to sign up to do what was, you know, to join the war effort for their country and not really realizing what was about to happen to them, what kind of horror they would descend into. Now, I know that the new Netflix film, just because, like I said, CGI and just everything like that, it just really seems very realistic. I did watch a war historian or military historian go through some of the different scenes of the Netflix one and say, is this really realistic to actual trench warfare and things that were happening? And they talked about why they thought in terms of the actual war being fought itself that there were a lot of realistic scenes in this, but it is gruesome, as I said, and it takes you right there into the trenches during World War I. However, there's been reviews and your article itself talked about the differences between this book and its portrayal of, and its interpretation, I would say, of Remark's book and the 1930 film. So can you let us know a little bit about the differences between the two films and do you think it helps or hurts this particular adaptation because more people will be seeing the Netflix film probably than going back and also a lot of people have said it's one of the great films of all time and yet you know I don't know I I knew that it was won the Oscar I knew the name of the film I knew what it was about but then if I've seen clips on it it just seems like your typical kind of Hollywood black and white film of the day and so it doesn't seem as I don't know, engaging to a modern audience maybe as the Netflix adaptation. Oh, right. And it, it certainly isn't, isn't going to be. The 1930 adaptation is, is not going to be. It doesn't have you know, the flash and all the pizzazz of you know, the, the modern CGI. And, and there, there are ways even in which uh, the computer-generated imagery can heighten the realistic aspect of the uh, the Netflix version. I'm sure that there are instances in which you could you could watch the Netflix film and, and see a, a far more uh, realistic angle there than with the, the 1930 adaptation. That being said, it's more in uh, the attitude of the adaptation toward Remark's original novel that I think I noticed the biggest differences. And the Netflix film, it, uh, it, it really makes some changes that I, I kind of thought were fairly bizarre. It, it removes 
the scenes in which Paul returns home and attempts to reconnect with his family and his former school teachers. And I can understand based on the condensed timeline and how uh, the screenwriters and the director, Edward Berger, chose to to tell this particular version of their story. I can see why those scenes would, would be cut. But the the issue I would raise with that is if you're if those are the scenes you're cutting, then I I would begin to wonder if maybe the the point of Remark's original story is somehow being missed altogether. Uh, because those are the scenes that really begin to reinforce uh, the point that Remark was making, not just horror of of war in the trenches, but uh, the way that it dehumanizes, the way that it uh, robs you of your ability to go back to any sense of normalcy and normal life, um, that becomes a, a, a serious problem. And uh, not only that, but it's it's that same kind of glimpse when Paul goes home and uh, sees his family and all of that. It, it's it's the same glimpse of that that you get when he kills the man, uh, the corpse that he sort of has his his moment with in the, the Netflix adaptation. However long that lasts, I think in, in the book he spends like an entire night with the corpse, this man that he's killed, but is suddenly you know, haunted by what he's done and he can't get over what he's done to the point where he goes to his friends later on and has a conversation with them about having killed this man, you know, whose corpse he's literally begged forgiveness from. Those those scenes of going home to his family sort of reinforce and, and, and haunt him uh, in that, that moment of, of of killing that that man because that's supposed to it's supposed to be like a mirror that's going on that that when he when he's looking at the dead man he realizes this is the stuff that i've robbed from him and so it just seems like a very odd decision to me to try to cut those particular scenes out and the netflix adaptation also limits paul's characterization as a sort of bright but naive young thinker the naivety is there and there are some lines in there I think when he's talking with uh, uh, Kat about uh, how Kat's telling him you're educated, you're you're smart, you can read, you need to go on and do college. Well, and that, all that's true, but it, he's much more than that in, in the, the novel. He's not just educated. He's actually kind of a, a bit of an amateur philosopher. He has a, a great love of poetry. And so the uh, Netflix adaptation downplays his characterization. It downplays the empathy angle a good bit um, just because it removes a lot of Paul's thoughts and some of his conversations. Uh, and it, it does this to shoehorn in a plot that isn't in the novel. The plot that they put into the Netflix adaptation is a story about the armistice negotiations that ultimately lead to the end of the war. And it works certainly to highlight the idea, which is in Remark's novel, it certainly highlights the idea of how soldiers to the people in power run the risk of just becoming numbers and statistics, uh, you know, just bodies to throw at the, the front line. Uh, but in 
in emphasizing that, it also removes the opportunities for Paul to get into these discussions on the morality of, of war in the first place. So there's a there's a trade-off. I just don't know that what was traded was uh, very wise for what you get out of it. So I want to talk specifically because you mentioned Paul, Paul Baumer, who is the main character. And in his book, he's portrayed, you know, as a sensitive young man. And like you were saying, there's things about the book that are not adapted into the Netflix film. But obviously some things are still there. Like you mentioned the scene with uh, he kills someone. I mean, it's kind of you get the impression it was like kill or be killed. So it just shows the brutality of war. I mean, they're just basically trying to survive in the mud. And it's either if he didn't kill that guy, he would be killed. So, you know, you see this kind of um, wrestlings that Paul has probably not as much since you've seen both films as in the first film. But what draws audiences to this type of character? I mean, he does start out very idealized. I mean, in the film, I don't know if this is true for the book, so you'll have to let us know. But in the film, all his friends are parents have signed off so that they can go and train to be in the war. But he's too young. So he forges his parents' signature so that he can go with his friends. Now, I know in real life, Remark was actually drafted into the war and he was there on the Western Front. But um, why do you think audiences have an affinity with this kind of character, even in such a dark story like this one, even in that kind of seeing him struggle and kill this guy and then feel the remorse, remorse with that corpse? And obviously, even though the war ends, they show the the ending of the war with all of the various officials. It just still seems so tragic because you recognize so much loss of life that happened. Yeah. So uh, the, the way that the, uh, the film enters Paul into the war is very different from uh, the book, which the book relies on, you know, again, those scenes in which Paul goes back home are actually very closely tied to the story remark is telling because the reason Paul enlists in the, first place in the novel is because he is stirred up to patriotism by his school teacher. So he enlists with all of his friends uh, because these same people that he's eventually going to go back and talk to are very patriotic, are very, you need to do what needs to be done for your country, um, all of that sort of thing. And, you know, the irony there is that when he does get to the front and his friends start dying and he sees, you know, this isn't all it's cracked up to be, when he goes back home, these are the people that he really gets into it with um, in these in these debates. Uh, the same people who, who put him out there but themselves have no concept of what it's actually like to, to be there. So in the, the Netflix adaptation, the, the forging of the parent's signature, not being old enough, all of that, um, that that's... Again, that's sort of made up to compensate for the fact that they removed the scenes of Paul going back home. Uh, but I, I think that people are uh, drawn to a character like Paul, who we would, we would really call an everyman in one sense, uh, because they are very relatable. 
we can put ourselves quite easily into their shoes, especially these younger characters who are 16, 17 years old, because we've all, we've all been there. We've all had that kind of youthful naivety be shattered against reality at some point. And, uh, we also recognize that there's a a kind of innocence there in a character uh, like not like Paul that you really wish for and want to have maintained throughout life. And I think one of the great tragedies of the modern era is that we we really have lost that. Uh, there's no such thing as innocence anymore. Everything is is sexualized at an absurdly young age, for example. There's nothing sacred. There's nothing modest. There's certainly no dignity in the digital age. Um, and you know, if you try to instill those things in your kids, you you run the very real risk of having your kids turn around and either accuse you of, of at best being a helicopter parent, or at worst, you know, actually trying to sabotage their development. Um, and I'm, I'm not one of those people who thinks you can shield your kids from everything wrong in the world. Uh, but at the same time, there is a, a sense in which uh, you want innocence to be maintained. And with someone like Paul, you see the tragedy of that kind of, again, youthful innocence being uh, shattered practically overnight as soon as he, he hits the front that that image begins to break down as you know, his his friends start dying really rather quickly and that's part of the thing that makes the ending of the story so tragic which is, is the same consistently throughout a, you know the Netflix adaptation at least you know has the uh, the strength of of uh, character to recognize that the ending is is without doubt the most powerful part of the story um, because it is you know the the extinguishing of of a world uh, in in the person of Paul and it's you know the, uh, spoilers being what they are but you know he Paul dies a very very unceremonious death and the way that this is shown in the novel is that his death is is more or less it's not a, he's not even mentioned by name. It's it's more or less just a footnote in a report, in an official memorandum, that simply says there's nothing new in the West or it's all quiet on the Western Front. You're like, well, no, <laughs> they're dying, including Paul. Um, all the adaptations uh, maintain that, uh, but that's I think part of part of what makes the story and and the character of Paul, particularly in this story, so compelling. Uh, is is that it's the uh, the tragic loss of a very uh, youthful life, uh, a very young life, but more than that, just youthful innocence being being shattered against this terrible reality. And uh, even though it's it's dark and, and tough to sit through, it's still very compelling storytelling. In your review of this film, you note the importance of empathy in Remark's original novel. And I'd like to ask you if you think that it translates into this new adaptation, this new film. And of course, you know, it's 
had different directors. You know, you mentioned the Oscar-winning 1930s picture from Millstone and this new adaptation for Netflix by Edward Berger. And they've all had their own, I guess, spin on the material. Do you find that this particular Netflix one is the definitive adaptation, or do you think it is just adding to the conversation that Remark is trying to make from his original novel? Or do you think it it's not really getting his original novel, the ethos of it, quite right? So ultimately, I, I do think the Netflix adaptation sort of misses the point of Remark's book. It really misses the importance of, of empathy to that story. And I've, I've read a, a number of reviews, uh, and not just reviews, but interviews, that Edward Berger, the guy who, who directed this one, I'm, I'm fairly certain wrote the screenplay or, or has, has a screenwriting credit on this, along with directing it. Um, I, I've read the interviews and saw the things he emphasizes and what he, what he talks about. And um, there, there are certainly traces of empathy there because it's just, it's, it's in the warp and roof of Mark's books. It's just the scene where he, he kills the man um, and then, you know, spends a period of time with the, the man's corpse and it's sort of haunting him and what he's done. But the thing that was consistently emphasized in these interviews I read was, again, this, this horrors of war, uh, which it's a very easy thing to talk about. Well, the horrors of war, well, of course, war, war is horrific. It, that's really not that difficult to portray. Uh, but the empathy, um, the humanity of it, that's a little different. And I'll point out that this is the thing that when I finished watching this adaptation, I, I just could not get away from in my thinking. What spooked the Nazis about Remark's book wasn't the horrors of war. We weren't quite worried about that. You could, uh, you could, you know, easily just get someone over that hurdle if you're trying to, you know, convince them to march out onto the front. It was the it was the empathy. It was the empathetic angle. That's what spooked the Nazis about the book damaging the war effort. Uh, the, not, not the fact that war was terrible, but the fact that you weren't just killing bad guys. You're killing people. People who are like you. Like you said, the, the scene where it's portrayed is like it's, it's either you or him, kill or be killed. Well, that's exactly what Paul does. But then he can't get past it. He can't compartmentalize that. He doesn't compartmentalize well at all. He can't get away from the morality of what his country expects him to do um, and what he himself had done. And that was seen to be a serious concern for the war effort, uh, at least among, among the Nazis going into World War II. And uh, the thing that I couldn't get away from when watching this adaptation is I'm, I'm watching it and I finish watching it and I go, I don't see how a, someone like uh, a member of the Nazi party would would see this as a threat to the war effort. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it, it certainly shows the, the horrors of war, and it, it's very gruesome and all of that, but there's nothing in it in that sense that offends the very sensibility of or the seeming sensibility of of war between nation states. And yet that is exactly what Remark's book did. 
and the the secret there is in the uh, the empathy, the putting the putting a real human face on not just the people in the trenches on your side, but also a human face, you know, on the people in, in, in the trenches on the other side as well. Uh, that was that's where the real power of Remark's book lies. And those scenes when Paul goes back home and is arguing with his, he doesn't so much argue with his family, but he's arguing with his school teachers and he's arguing with all of these youths where, you know, he himself uh, had, had sat in, in the, the chairs. He's talking to these people who just, you know, uh, the, these students who were him, they're sitting where he sat. And he sees just how, not brainwashed, but just how, um, just how misled that they were just how these you know school teachers who knew really nothing about the reality of the situation were sort of preying upon the impressionable minds of the kids uh he sees all of this and how they strip the humanity away uh of not just him and them but the the people that they're fighting as well and he he really can't get past that he's he's a terrible soldier Right, Paul. Paul is a terrible soldier. He can't compartmentalize anything. He's haunted by everything he does, and uh, that's that's the real power of Remark's book is it allows that kind of honesty uh, to be seen, uh, where you you say, okay, what what happens when you have a soldier who doesn't actually handle this stuff well? Well, that's Paul, and uh, it, you really get into some fascinating you know, philosophical and moral and ethical discussions as a result of it. So. No, I don't think the Netflix adaptation is in any way, shape, or form the definitive adaptation of Remark's book. Um, it is an adaptation, and uh, it doesn't you know, really change, so to speak, uh, or alter too much. It cuts out quite a bit, and I think it cuts out very important stuff that sort of shows a, a misunderstanding of what Remark was doing. Uh, but I think if you want to see a... a an adaptation that's very similar to what Remark was trying to do, or at least understood the, the ethos of Remark's book, uh, check out the 1930 adaptation. I would say that perhaps just the graphic, very realistic portrayal of war in the Netflix adaptation might just spur people on to go look up Remark's book and read it for themselves the original text to see if it was adapted well. As a matter of fact, you did mention, yes, Edward Berger is up for an Oscar for the best adaptation of existing material. So we'll see if people, if he wins, if people actually know if he ad adapted it well or not. And also there's, you know, we're, we're a little bit more far removed from war in the West. And so maybe seeing this movie will make people think a little bit more because certainly there are wars being fought all over the world right now. It's just that we never see it. It's not up close to us anymore. Well, on a much different note, I finally have a rapid fire question for Cole. And in light of our conversation, Cole, is there a war film that you would recommend that Christians watch? I'm I'm very partial to the bridge on the River Kwai, very partial to that. So I, I would I would suggest checking that one out. Consider one of the greatest films ever made. Pretty old, pretty dated, but worth checking out. Well, thank you, Cole, for being a guest again on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 
You've been listening to episode 330 of the Postmodern Realities podcast from the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest was one of our authors, Cole Burgett. He has written an online exclusive film review for the Christian Research Journal. His review is called Finding Empathy in the Trenches, a review of Netflix's All Quiet on the Western Front. And our journal subscribers can read his article for free at our website, equip.org. Stay connected with the Christian Research Institute and all the new content we have coming your way. The best way to do that is to head on over to our website, equip.org. There you will find thousands of free resources right at your fingertips, from articles to video to audio, and it's all for free. You'll find our podcasts hosted there as well as the Bible Answer Man broadcast, which is hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff and streams live every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern. In addition, you don't want to miss out on subscribing to Hank Unplugged, which is the podcast of Hank Hanegraaff. And in that podcast, he has really in-depth, free-flowing, essential Christian conversations with some of the most interesting, informative, and inspirational people. And in addition, he has a new series on his podcast feed called Hank Unplugged Shorts, which Hank goes into the headlines in the mainstream media and refutes a lot of those cultural issues that we have in these short podcast episodes. And there's quite a few of them. You don't want to miss out on them. Now, if you want to find some of this at other places where it's all in one place, really subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's a great way to get all of our content there, our podcasts there, and different individual questions theologically that people have that Hank answers at our YouTube channel. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't know how to subscribe to YouTube. I don't have a YouTube account. Well, actually, you might just have a YouTube account. If you have a Gmail address, you have a YouTube account. Just log into YouTube with your Gmail address and search for Bible Answer Man channel, and please become one of our subscribers. In addition, if you see that bell icon right there on our front page, please click that, and every time that we have new content, you will receive a notification that new content is up on our channel for you to be able to consume. So thank you so much for the ways in which you partner with the Christian Research Institute. We are grateful for you listening and reading and watching. Mm-hmm.